Max Verstappen takes an emphatic victory from ninth on the grid over pole getter Sergio Perez to reassert his championship status. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 5, the Miami Grand Prix. Sergio Perez arrived in Miami riding a wave of confidence and with a chance to take the championship lead. He left chastened by a Max Verstappen masterclass. Verstappen started ninth after a red flag in qualifying left him without a time, but it took him just 15 laps to rise to second place, just a few seconds behind Perez. The Mexican was struggling with the medium tyre in the opening stint, and it turned out Verstappen, starting on the hards, had the better strategy all along. The damage had already been done, but Perez's own stint on the hards really sealed the deal. He was unable to make really any inroads on Verstappen, who rejoined the race after his own pit stop directly behind his teammate, and he easily took the lead. Better tyre management, better pace, and better strategy. Perez was never really in this fight. So to talk us through how the Miami Grand Prix was won, I'm joined by freelance F1 journalist Matt Clayton. Matt, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Michael, it's nice to make my annual visit. And uh, as we were discussing off air, it's funny, isn't it, that uh, on the day that Max Verstappen equals Sebastian Vettel's record for the most wins by one driver at Red Bull with his 38th win there, we realised that we did his first one back in Spain 2016. So uh, there you go. A nice little bookend to the Max Verstappen story so far, we could say. I don't think the wins are going to end there, though, unfortunately for Sergio Perez Uh, and any other rivals. But uh, I'll work there. I realised I probably should have given you a more dramatic intro in keeping with Miami as well. Maybe friend of Pierre Gasly or something like that. I was a little bit disappointed that you hadn't gone down the LL Cool J lyrics <laughs> rabbit hole for me and you know changed a few lyrics and busted out your best freestyle for me as I came on. But uh, LL Cool J, I'm looking forward to having at least five minutes on this podcast to discuss him a little bit later. But uh, look, while we're on the subject of Miami, I'd just like to say the American sports love having their most valuable player awards, the MVP, mm-hmm. the big chant they do at all their sporting events. And I'm going to say, to start this, that I think that the MVP of the Miami Grand Prix was Charles Leclerc, and I wondered what your thoughts were. <laughs> well, he certainly proved decisive to most of the, the weekend, I'll say that much. He sure did. I don't know how he'd feel personally about getting the MVP award, nor Ferrari, but <laughs> undoubtedly he caused quite a lot of the, uh, let's say, twists and turns of this weekend. Maybe we'll talk about him in a moment. Mm. Um, good nomination, though. I enjoy the nomination. Um, I want to start with this location and circuit first, because that's sort of, I mean, second year of this event being run. It's certainly a um, bookmark event for Formula One, I suppose, a high profile event, although most of those reasons are for off-track uh, reasons, very expensive off-track reasons. Uh, but in the last 10 days as well, this has arrived at a time where Formula One's talking a lot about raceability and whether or not this season is going to be harder for the cars to race more closely. Part of that's tied up in, of course, Red Bull's domination, all that kind of thing. We got a little bit of passing this weekend. A lot of it was DRS initiated, although that's kind of a Formula One thing these days. Can we read anything into the race we got in terms of that circuit layout? Because I know when we arrived last year, there was a lot of talk about this being... <laughs> artificially intelligently designed to be the most raceable circuit. Many simulations are on. This was the best one. What do we know more about or what do we feel about that outcome after two races here? I'd love to see the worst ones if that's the best one. But um, look, I don't think I don't think ostensibly it's a terrible racetrack. It's a little bit artificial and fake and everything else, but that kind of is the Miami Grand Prix to some degree. But I think it's more of a commentary on the width and the weight of these cars and just how lazy and not particular Formula One they look like in a lot of slow speed change of direction. So at the end of the 
the first straight, if you like, uh, at the end of the lap when it goes into that stadium section and the cars just look clumsy and a bit not particularly exciting, not particularly Formula One, but I think it's more a function of the layout of this track in that you have long straights into hairpins. The only passing you're going to get is DRS passing. These cars are so wide and they are so heavy and they're just a bit clumsy. And I think the thing we've seen this year is that obviously the greater maturity you have in a rule set, you're going to have these teams finding ways to reclaim some of the downforce that they've lost with the new regulations. The cars and the drivers are saying this, you can still follow, but it is harder than last year. And unless you've got a massive car advantage, i.e. you're in a Red Bull, <laughs> it's very hard to remember too many great passes this year that aren't DRS-assisted. So I think it's a maturity of rule set. I think it's teams understanding them more and trying to regain some of the things they lost from 2022. And then because you've just got this team in this one division by itself and everyone else is kind of in this uh, section of the, the grid right now, I don't think it's a terrible racetrack. I think it could be better, but I think you could say that about a lot of them. But I think a lot of it's down to just the car width and weight and the way that they're operating this year. It certainly is a larger problem for F1 to consider when it's trying to write its new set of rules is that, okay, we've gotten to this stage where the cars work in a certain way, certainly better than the previous generation. There was a reasonable step forward last year, so even a smaller step back probably leaves us as a net gain. But there are now, and I'm glad to hear drivers talking about it. Yes, the weight problem is a big one. These cars are so much heavier than they were uh, a couple of generations ago. And the size one, you know, I, was it last year's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix where one of Fernando Alonso's championship winning Renaults was rolled out for a demonstration or maybe the year before? It's the previous and year, yeah. Just seeing it near a modern car reminded you how miniature some of these older iconic cars were and how nimble they were as a result. Well, yeah, the, the nimbleness through the chicane at Abu Dhabi, mm. that's what I remember. And Fernando was out there just ragging it because that's what Fernando <laughs> does. I'm sure we'll talk about him later on. But the agility of the car in the high-speed change of direction stuff, and you look at the, the lap times these days, they're much quicker than they were back in 2004. But there's something about the aesthetics of those cars being smaller and lighter and being able to be really manhandled. The onboard was absolutely spectacular. And sometimes I think it's a reminder that faster in terms of the stopwatch is not always better in terms of the spectacle. But you know, this is the rule set that we have right now. I think there's just certain parts of certain tracks where this is supposed to be the best motorsport category in the world. And I don't think that the cars necessarily suit some of the circuits. We can't expect all the circuits to change, but I don't think some of these tracks show these cars in their best lights. There's some parts of various tracks that we've got coming up where these cars are absolutely incredible. I'm thinking of turn three in Barcelona where you're basically just turning right through that whole sequence of corners and the, the corner speed is absolutely spectacular through there. But anything that's slow speed, clunky chicane, it just doesn't look very F1 at the moment, does it? No, and ironic that the percentage of street circuits on the calendar is only growing under Going these up, rules. yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, it's an interesting one. The surface is another element of this circuit that was talked about a lot because last year was a major gripe among drivers. It was In fact, it did completely break up in parts last year. It had to be sort of repaired last minute sort of way uh, ahead of the race and the track was generally shedding its own stones for a lot of last year which is not ideal not usually the way you'd build a road this year was completely relayed around about january as i understand it or after january so in the last couple of months let's say and while it, the, the grip level was improved and the track did not break up as far as i'm aware so massive step forward in that sense Grip levels were still a concern among drivers, and now we did. There were reasons why the race was perhaps not as bad as it was feared on on Saturday night. But 
still wasn't ideal. What did F1 take away from this, considering it feels like in the last couple of years we've been talking an unusual amount about newly laid track surfaces and how to deal with them? I reckon I've typed the word water blast more (laughs) in the last couple of years. Now, I think it is one word, not two, or not hyphenate. I'm going with one. (laughs) But I've typed that word more than I've ever done it in however many years I've been doing this, because we have this issue with the way a newly laid asphalt felt cures, if you like. And what was interesting about this Miami race is that they had decided not to water blast the surface, which does remove that sort of layer of bitumen and oil that just sits on top of that newly laid asphalt. I think we got a little bit lucky in Sunday's race in that there was some cloud cover and it wasn't as hot. So I don't think that the surface was going to break up quite as much. But you saw offline, it was you saw how quickly in the race the, the racing line rubbered in. And allied to what we were talking about before with passing, if you had to get offline to allow a lapped car to come through or whatever it may be, it was so treacherous out there. So it created a racetrack within a racetrack. And the surface being what it was, I think that's why we had a reasonably processional Grand Prix. So whether the longer term play is to not water blast this surface because as it ages, it'll become, you know, next year will be much better Mm -hmm. than them completely resurfacing it from 22 to 23. So the expense of maybe not the greatest spectacle last weekend, maybe future races in Miami might be a bit better, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of car and tyre elements that come to that. But uh, offline, that thing was like a rally course, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you could maybe optimistically say that considering some of the rain they get in subtropical parts of the world coming into this time of the year, maybe the water blasting will take care of itself. Yeah. You only need a hurricane or two, and I'm sure it'll sort itself out. Uh, the 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 grip the lack of grip offline. Let's bring in your MVP for this weekend. <laughs> seemed to be part of the reason that Charles Leclerc went off. We saw a couple of offs during practice as well. Some unusual offs, considering it is only practice. Some quite high speed ones. Leclerc was really going for it in his second. Uh, well, no, actually, we've got to talk back to to free practice. In fact, before we talk about his qualifying crash. Funny little accident, just a little bit offline, quite fast into the barriers, able to wash off a lot of speed because of the amount of runoff there, but nonetheless quite fast going off the track. Um, he, I think Nico Hulkenberg also talked about the lack of grip, but that came, that crash in particular came at quite a critical part in FP2 where we normally get a sense of how the weekend's going to unfold. Very much so. And I think that's, uh, I don't blame you for getting confused with Charles Leclerc accidents. <laughs> he tends to have quite a few of them. I think I think, he, I think he's had three in about the last eight days mm-hmm. or something, but uh, all of a result of pushing for a time that's probably, that car isn't particularly capable of it. We know how he, he, how he rolls, but uh, we got this really incomplete picture, didn't we, on Friday because we didn't get your standard FP2 session. And then, if I remember correctly, it rained quite a bit on Saturday night. So the race really was a bit of a step into the unknown, which is why I don't think there was a a way that people thought this 100% confirmed the best way to go about this race. I think that's one thing that the lack of FP2 time plus the rain actually threw that variable into the mix. But uh, saying before about Leclerc being the MVP, I'm trying to imagine what this race would have been like without a red flag qualifying and a bit of a jumbled grid. And I think for that, uh, Charles Leclerc, we deserve to raise a glass to him. <laughs> Absolutely. Good for him. Absolute MVP award. Mm. The absolute bloke of the weekend, I think you could say. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, or you would say in a different motorsport category you anyway. Would, in capital letters. Let's touch briefly on Q3 before we look at the strategy that decided the victory of the race. Because the result of that red flag in Q3, very late in Q3, just as the second runs were starting, meant Sergio Perez started on pole and Max Verstappen started without a time in ninth after he made a mistake, close to a Leclerc-style mistake, in fact, uh, on his first lap, abandoned that, didn't set a second one, just was going to go for that second run. 
Perez was undoubtedly, and we saw in the race as well, a step behind Verstappen for much of this weekend. Did look like he'd made a bit of a step on Saturday, admittedly. Quick enough to comfortably, well, I mean, the car was certainly quick enough to comfortably take provisional fault, but nonetheless, he was there, he did the job. In, in a year in which we're going to ask, I don't know how much longer we're going to ask it, but for now, I'm going to continue to ask what it's going to take, what conditions it's going to require for Perez to get the championship lead this year. I mean, how do we weigh up this incident? Was this Perez putting it all together when he needed to and, and being able to capitalise on, on advantage? Was it luck on his part that he was even looking at being able to take a title lead from starting from pole? How much responsibility does Verstappen ultimately take for not setting a banker lap? How did you sort of feel coming to the end of Saturday? I get the sense that we were talking about Leclerc before, how he kept his foot in after he'd made a mistake in turns one and two and then effectively crashed in, in Q3. When you've got a car advantage like Red Bull have at the moment, Verstappen could have tried to have salvaged that lap and it probably would have still been good enough to you know, be on the second row. But it's like, well, I've got such a car advantage here. I'll just trundle around and I'll fire my best shot on my last lap. Obviously, that didn't happen for him. But I think the Perez thing... Earlier on the weekend, he'd actually said that this was his worst weekend of the year up until Q3 because he was pretty much nowhere relative to his teammate through Friday and most of Saturday. So it was an outlier that he was on pole because we never got the representative comparative lap by Verstappen and because they're in their own separate category at the moment. Yeah, I think he got it together relative to what he'd done on Friday. But you also wonder, had Verstappen just persisted with that first lap in Q3, okay, he's made a mistake, didn't back out of it he probably still would have been on the second row. You've got a completely different race in that regard. So I think this was, you know, we're talking championship contention and what have you. The way Perez deals with the rare Verstappen off weekends or when there's an extenuating circumstance like Jeddah, for example, he handled that incredibly well and he took the win as a result. And even the way Baku played out in that he got the rub of the green. I don't want to say luck because I'm going to sound like Red Bull's social media accounts. I have to use the word <laughs> luck and fortune every time Sergio does something. I think that's contractually obliged. But uh, the two chances he's had this year before Miami to capitalise on something going wrong for Verstappen, he's actually taken them. And you look at Baku, he got the rub of the green with the safety car and the way the pit stops worked out and didn't falter and, and took a really accomplished win. But when you're in a race of two in the best car in the field and your teammate's starting five rows behind you, if you're a legit championship contender, you have to nail those weekends because they don't come along very often. And as it turned out, he was probably on, theoretically, the advantageous strategy and this race wasn't really under any sort of doubt, I don't think, after about lap 25, maybe about half distance, because it just seemed inevitable that Verstappen on what was probably the inferior strategy was going to beat him. And if you're Perez and considering yourself a championship contender, you can't afford to do that. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to state it. I think, uh, and I've been saying this sort of this in the, well, the last couple of days anyway, I don't feel like a performance like this from Perez invalidates what we saw in, in Jeddah and Baku. I think they were genuinely good performances, had the measure of Verstappen, even if he had some luck to ultimately get the victory. He did go out and get it. He needed to take it for himself. Yeah. But Verstappen, even in the mistakes we've seen from him this year or the, or the off weekends, doesn't really have off weekends. His performance is never low. It's normally circumstances that trip him up. Perez has to eliminate weekends like this if he's going to realistically stand a chance because it only takes a couple of weekends like this for a championship to be won. You know, we could see the points battle go all the way to September or October 
without Perez having even a realistic chance of closing it down just because of weekends like this. Yeah, I agree. I think we'll be uh, writing that yeah, we'll be using uh, mathematically in contention, <laughs> even though we know that you know, in, in reality it probably isn't because they're not really on a normal race weekend under too much pressure from behind. Mm. And you, know, you have to think, when was the last time Verstappen had a really, really scruffy weekend where he hemorrhaged a load of points? It just doesn't happen. Mm. And you look back at crazy stat for you that I did dig out that I did want to bring up at some point. So you think Australia 2022, remember Charles Leclerc winning that race yeah. at an absolute <laughs> canter that day? Mm. There's been 24 Grand Prix since then. How many do you reckon Red Bulls won off the top of your head? Uh, they've I, I, they've only lost three of them, I guess. So how many did you say there were? Yeah, so 21 of the past yeah. 24 since <laughs> Australia 2022. And we all left Albert Park in 2022 yeah. thinking, wow, Ferrari's on here because of the the dominance of Leclerc. But you look at the, those 24 races since then, how many of those has Max been a little bit off or not quite himself or, you know, there's always an extenuating circumstance. He has his sort of random, like, Brazil last year. It's like, it yeah. didn't quite happen. But when it actually matters against the entire field, he doesn't tend to drop the ball. This year, you've got this one-team championship at the front bar and any sort of crazy development from anybody else in the field this year. He's not going to have too many of these off weekends. And I think that's what separates the good drivers from the great drivers. I, I've never massively rated Perez as... I don't think he's a great driver. I think he's a very good Grand Prix driver and he's won races and what have you. But that's not going to be enough mm. against a guy of Verstappen's consistency and quality when he has the best car. Yeah. I mean, the only time we've seen, let's say, modern Verstappen crack is up against Lewis Hamilton. Yes. Who is a long, perhaps alongside Verstappen, one of the great, or the greatest of the era, maybe greatest of all time. I like Sergio Perez, but I don't think he's the greatest of all time. And if Verstappen has even one percentage point ability to drive within himself, then he doesn't fall over. It doesn't happen. Completely right. So I, I think that's going to be a difficult season for him. Lap 25, roughly when it seemed like this race was done. You could even say lap 15. I think that was roughly when he got into second place ahead of Fernando Alonso. Just before we look at that tyre strategy that ultimately meant it was never going to be in doubt, as we learned by the end of the race anyway... I liked after qualifying, Fernando Alonso was asked, I think by Sky Sports, what lap do you expect to see Verstappen in your mirrors trying to pass you? And he said lap 25, and he thought he was being cheeky by suggesting such an early <laughs> lap. Turned out to be 10 laps earlier than that. But it did raise, and we've talked about it a lot already, the fact that Red Bull is just in this different category. And everyone understands it now. You know, we've had five races. There aren't any tracks where they're... You know, Monaco might be the only outlier in the, in the future, but that is such an outlier. It doesn't count for anything in terms of the grand scheme of the calendar. There's no tracks where they're going to be tripped up. There are no tracks where any of the, what I'm going to call midfield teams now, Aston Martin, Mercedes and Ferrari, can close the gap other than maybe in qualifying. But that is clearly an outlying performance in itself for Ferrari. It struck me that, and we can make a comparison with Lewis Hamilton in this race, Verstappen was very much waved past in the styles of the best of Mercedes years in the last decade where teams almost ignored them on the track because they knew that there was no point holding them up. There was no, even compared to Saudi Arabia earlier this year, there was no impediment at all to Verstappen getting up to second. I, I, I even know like, there, there are different ways we could approach this question. I mean, what does that mean for that battle at the front if we are going to have occasionally Red Bull starting out of position doesn't matter at all this season if it takes only a couple of them laps to resume it. What does that say about the hope for, for midfield teams scoring anything big this year if even in their minds they know it's not going to happen? I mean, it's a bit dispiriting. It's a little dispiriting, but I think it's completely explainable because if mm -hmm. you're any other team right now, why would you bother picking a fight with uh, picking a fight you can't win? 
That's basically what it comes down to, unless there's some sort of technical gremlin or some pit stop mistake or what have you. They're in a different category at the moment. So if you're wasting time relative to your midfield or upper midfield rivals fighting with a car that you're not going to be on pace anyway, it's not great for the show, but it's also the reality in that most weekends, if the two Red Bulls are running and they're in position, you are fighting for a podium spot or fourth or whatever it might be. Why would you do anything to compromise your optimum result when you're not really fighting these guys? They're in their own separate category. Now, the fighting when it can happen between Aston Martin and Mercedes or Mercedes and Ferrari or anywhere up and down the field has been quite reasonable because there's a reason to get your elbows out. There's actually something to be gained from from having a fight. But I think it's just the reality that these teams know that they've got bigger problems at the moment than to unnecessarily waste time, effort, energy, resource for something that's so far ahead of them that they're not really in the same category. And I know that sounds a little harsh and maybe a little sad, but I think when you're dealing on the fine margins, I think the you know second through, you could say seventh, eighth in the championship, depending on the weekend, can vary quite a bit. So that's quite interesting. But in terms of the big prizes on offer, they're not in the same fight at the moment. Yeah, I think that's just the cold, hard reality of Formula 1 at the moment, isn't that's it? That's what I'm here for, the cold, hard yeah. reality, Michael. That's why I'm here. <laughs> you can tune into television if you want sort of a soft, fluffy approach, but it's all over, guys. Mm. The season's all mm. over. I Thanks ever, ever so much indeed, as ever, Michael, yes. <laughs> Thanks for staying up. <laughs> Stay ahead of the pack with the latest racing news and interviews from the Hammerdown Racing Report, your source for regional racing action as well as the national scene. Every week, we recap racing action from all around Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan and cover national racing series from the world of outlaws to NASCAR. Plus, get all the latest racing news. Join hosts Scott Hammer and Ron Miller, along with different featured guests each week. From dirt to asphalt, we have you covered. The Hammerdown Racing Report, available weekly on your favorite podcasting platform. In that context, then, I think is interesting. So if we talk at the tyre strategy now, which ultimately guaranteed that Verstappen was going to be in a position to win this race, even if his pace alone probably would have done it, let's be honest. Started on the hard tyre. The hard tyre ended up being the tyre of this race. Pretty much didn't degrade over the course of it. Probably could have done easily the entire uh, race distance. Most drivers still started on the mediums because that was after truncated Friday practice and the track conditions of Friday, the, the optimum strategy. But clearly there was talk about some drivers starting on hards because enough of them did. Verstappen did. Perez said it was something they talked about but decided there was too much risk involved in starting on the hards and no one was ultimately sure what the track conditions were going to be. Do you think, though, in in future, considering that obviously this is a two-car battle now, or it has been all season, but nonetheless, Perez needs to focus more on Max here? Because we talk about the hard being a a risk off the line, and most drivers that started the hards did lose positions at least temporarily at the start. But does it matter if Perez from pole loses a position? Ultimately, if his battle, A, is with Max anyway, regardless of where he finishes, but B, there's no reasonable expectation that a Red Bull will finish lower than second no matter where they start this season. That very much surprised me because I would have thought, say you lose a place off the line if you're Perez, you start from pole, you're second at turn one or turn two or what have you. The one thing we do know about this Red Bull is that its greatest strength relative to the other cars on the grid, it has the best and most potent DRS on the grid. 
And given the nature of that particular layout in Miami there with the back straight that runs along the uh, the canal or whatever that horrible <laughs> thing they show from the helicopter shot next to the freeway <laughs> overpass is, he probably still would have been, you know, maybe two laps, he still would have been back in first place given the potency of that DRS. Now, Max didn't make massive progress until about probably lap four or so. He was reasonably circumspect at that point because he was trying to protect his tyres. I thought that was an opportunity lost there. Not that you're necessarily going to mimic what the other guy is doing, but given you have such a straight line speed advantage with DRS, even if you lose a place off the line, I don't think it would have taken Perez long to to have been back in first place. And look, in hindsight, as we worked out, as you said, there was so little degradation on the hards. You could have almost done 56 of the 57 laps on them and done the uh, Esteban Ocon Baku pit stop with a few people blocking yeah. your uh, entry point to the pit lane <laughs> if you wanted to. But uh, I thought that was a mistake in hindsight, because as you said, it's you're in a two-car race, not a 20-car race. Losing a place on the first lap wouldn't have been the worst thing overall for his race, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, I wonder how that might factor into strategic decisions. It's probably going to be rare that we get situations like this where one driver might be tempted to take theoretically the slower strategy because they're probably not going to be starting out of position more often than not. But if it does continue to be close, different strategies are going to have to factor into it at some point if either driver wants to steal a march on the other. Well, and this is the interesting part about the dynamic between the two of them. I'm just sort of playing role reversal here. Do you think that Max would have would ever consider choosing a strategy to necessarily cover off Perez, or would he just say, I'm just going to be faster than this guy and beat him on the track, whereas I think that's a consideration that Perez has to make any time, the rare times, that Max is out of position, as he was here and as he was in Jeddah. I get the feeling that Perez will be thinking much more about Verstappen's strategy than Verstappen's thinking about Perez's, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. But, I mean, that's the situation Perez finds himself in. We've talked about it, or it's been talked about this year, that Perez needs to... Well, he needs to destabilise Verstappen, realistically. If we talked already, as we have this episode, talked about the fact that Verstappen doesn't really have off races and Perez needs to eliminate his, the flip side of that is... Perez needs to find ways to make Verstappen have off races. Yeah. And if that's just being annoying, copying strategy sheets or whatever, just somehow to irritate him, I don't think that's going to be enough to do it, to be honest. I think Verstappen knows he has enough pace in hand to win this, won't be flustered. Um, but that's the only way forward I can see if Perez can't eliminate these even marginally off weekends. Well, I think the the galling thing for Perez here is that he's known as, you know, the F1's tyre whisperer, yeah. you know, the guy who can make his tyres last the longest and take best care of his tyres. Max kind of beat him at his own game mm. in this race. So that's got to be even more galling. It's like you started eight places behind me and you've done a better job at the thing that I'm supposed to be the best at. Yes. That's uh, that one That one stings. That's, that's a victory that's worth more than just the seven points between first and second. That one actually stings because you've done Perez's thing better than Perez does. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's a hard thing to take for him, I think. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And that's what he sort of put it down to as well after the race. He said it was all done in the first stint. He started on those medium tyres. They proved more delicate on the greener track on uh, Sunday afternoon. Required too much management. And you saw it when Verstappen got up to second. Perez was only three and a half seconds thereabouts up the road. Didn't Wasn't able to build a buffer at all, even over Fernando Alonso. Uh, and it wasn't over caution in the end. It was just way too delicate. And because there was no degradation on the hard tyre, it meant that overlap in the middle of the race Perez couldn't really eat into it. He started with an 18 or 19 thereabouts, 18 plus second advantage, uh, disadvantage after coming out of the pits. When Verstappen stopped, it was still above 18 seconds. I mean, that was the race guaranteed really on the spot. It took only a DRS pass. Perez did defend a little bit. Oh, I hoped it was going to last for more than one lap. 
lasted only two corners. But. I must I must say, when Verstappen shaped up behind him, I just got that. Do you remember the big deal they made about the Minister of Defence yeah. and, you know, Checo's an animal and all that sort of stuff in Abu Dhabi 2021? I was thinking, come on, Sergio, get your elbows out. No, no talk of the Minister of Defence on that one. But again, we were talking about picking fights you can't win. I mean, yeah. he knew the game was up at that point. And you're right about that lead in that stint where Verstappen had stayed out on the hard tyre, that it was sort of in that 17, 18 second, it just sat there mm. at that particular rate. He wasn't far off being an entire pit stop ahead of him before he before he actually stopped, which is, uh, oof, that says something, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly right. So you, know, you might, if you wanted to be generous to Perez, say that somewhere in there he might have had close to equal pace and then the circumstances of the race really blew it open, but that's still not enough ultimately. And again, for Verstappen to win from ninth, it's not a great feeling one way or another. Uh, that's the way this Grand Prix was decided at the front. I want to look at that midfield that has been so interesting this year. I was going to say it's been fairly unpredictable, but Fernando Alonso's taken all but one of third place finishes. And even then, the only one he didn't get was in Baku, where there was pretty much no passing. So maybe you could put an asterisk on that. Technically, morally, has all third places. I don't know about that. Uh, Carlos Sainz tried to undercut him, really had nothing for him anyway. Mercedes weren't really on it, or they didn't qualify well enough ultimately, and, and can't warm up their tyres quick enough ultimately to be a real challenge to the Aston Martin car. We talked about the Red Bull pace advantage, and I know there's a long season to go and this midfield battle is much closer, but how close is that Aston Martin, do you think, to having a certain sense of security that Fernando Alonso is almost nailed on third with just getting the calls roughly correct on a weekend? Speaking of people in their own categories, I've got to say, <laughs> like, thank goodness there's a 41-year-old guy who's been in F1 for, you know, since 2001, about 18 years since Netflix invented Formula One, by the way. <laughs> um, thank goodness he's around because he has been an absolute breath of fresh air this year because of his ability to call the race from the cockpit, I think is, we've seen it, you know, him dragging bad cars into positions they shouldn't be in. And let's face it, he's made some decisions that have put himself in some bad cars over the years. It's still one of my favourite things in Formula One, but... You mentioned Mercedes and Ferrari. Ferrari, certainly in the hands of Leclerc, can qualify quickly, but it can't race. And the Mercedes looks Mercedes looks pretty rubbish in qualifying and generally over-achieves what you think they should be doing in the race, even though they're finishing 33 seconds off the win. Fernando's in this middle ground where he can cover both eventualities from the teams yeah. behind him. He doesn't make mistakes. He calls brilliant strategy from the cockpit. And there's a certain degree of... I love, or I don't know whether it's genuine or not, but I love all of this, you know, complimenting Lance Stroll on a pass that he saw on a big TV screen or relaying some sort of, oh, you know, tell Lance he should be doing this. And I love all of this because there's a sense of mischief toward mm. it, if you know the way Fernando operates. But he is operating on an incredibly high level at the moment because I think he was 0.8 of a second off the podium in Baku. Effectively, he is the best of the rest in every single race but one. Has he made a mistake this year? I'm not sure he has. And it's amazing to think we're talking about Aston Martin. You think where they were last year, basically nowhere, and the jump that they've made this year. Clearly, the car's good. It's a green Red Bull, if you ask some <laughs> people at Red Bull. It's a green 2022 Red Bull. But he is making the difference relative to the teams that are behind him that are probably better resourced and have great, better pedigree. I think he has been the, you know, if we're going to go down MVP mm -hmm. category, he has been unbelievable this season. And I love it how he's a reminder to those of us that have been around this for a long while of how good he is. Not that we needed to be reminded, but there's a whole new fan base that's appreciating how good this guy is now because, uh, you know, his championship winning days are a very long time ago. Yeah, wow, he's very big on TikTok, which is... A <laughs> 
Never thought I'd say that about Fernando Alonso, but there you go. It really is a new Fernando Alonso, there. very big on TikTok. Oh, boy. <laughs> but he did. He closed out this very well uh, for third place. I don't think... I mean, he's had a very comfortable margin over Lance Stroll all year. Hasn't been obliterating it. Like, I don't think Lance Stroll should feel embarrassed. But on a weekend where conditions are a bit tricky, Stroll only needed to make one relatively small misjudgment about how quick the qualifying track was improving. He was out in Q1. Alonso was never really at risk of doing that. I think that sort of underlines that extra value a driver like that brings to high pressure situations i think that really sort of sums it up well mercedes as you said much better race car this year even that was sort of the case last year to be fair as well lewis hamilton started out a position used that verstappen strategy and we sort of contrasted this earlier had a harder time partly because his drs is not nearly on the red bull's level of drs effectiveness but certainly wasn't waved through had to really fight for this one i thought it was interesting what he said afterwards that he liked feeling alive fighting through the field, paraphrasing, but nonetheless. I, I, it's always interesting then subsequently to hear what Toto Wolf says about these races as well. It's sort of satisfied, but I really get the sense they're ready for this next upgrade, don't you? That they are sick of being a team that is considered to be overachieving by getting fourth places in races. Well, I think there's, there's two things with Mercedes at the moment. They're not quick and they're not 100% sure they know why they're not quick. And that's mm. even worse. And, you know, you, some of Toto Wolf's media over the last couple of weeks, I mean, he said the car <laughs> is not nice, which uh, which certainly, you know, which is funnier when you say it in his voice, of course. Yeah. But it's just on a day-to-day basis, they don't know what they're going to get from this car. I mean, it's mm. unstable in high-speed corners. They run more rear wing. Then it doesn't turn. Like I was talking about that section of the track before when you come to the end of that first back straight. It was so sluggish and slow and awkward through the slow speed stuff. It looks absolutely terrible. And then it gets in the race and, you know, George Russell was fourth. He's 33 seconds off the victory. And you mentioned Lewis Hamilton having to, despite being stuck in a DRS train, and he sounded early on during that race like he was pretty ready to head for the airport. Like he didn't really seem that interested in doing the rest of the race. But fought his way up to sixth. It shows slivers of being a competent race car, which is a ridiculous thing to say mm-hmm. about a team that has mostly dominated the you know, V6 hybrid era until the last couple of years. They've got this huge Imola upgrade coming, and Toto Wolf has said there's no silver bullets with these things, but I think they just take, at the moment, if they can at least understand what mm-hmm. the car's doing and have a picture day-to-day, it's like, all right, so this is where this car is, now we can move forward. I don't think they know on a day-to-day basis, race-to-race basis, where the car is. So it makes progress pretty hard if you don't know where the starting point is. Yeah, exactly. It does feel a little bit like they haven't progressed enough on that standing in the last 12 months, really. We're talking about very similar things last year. The car is a bit more competitive, but clearly nowhere near the front, so it doesn't make too much difference, really. Finally, I want to talk about Ferrari, though. I I found their performance this weekend quite interesting. We talked about the MVP, Charles Leclerc, trying to get maybe a little bit more out of the car than there was. Maybe not out of the car than there should have been, considering this was the first weekend they brought their fast-tracked updates, considering they saw in pre-season early races that there were problems. They knew they had to fix them. They brought these upgrades quickly. Car was less competitive than it was in Baku, different tracks, but nonetheless. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting to hear what the drivers said afterwards, talking about the way they approach strategy. They pitted on very similar laps. Carlos Sainz said they don't have the options with the way this car works, particularly the way it uses its tyres, to do anything except stopping on a very particular lap and then struggling through the rest of the race just to get to the finish. It doesn't sound, in contrast to how it was last year, anything like a usable car. It's got a really narrow band. I think that's the thing that we can see from this year. And that when it is good, particularly Leclerc in qualifying, I still think he is the fastest one-lap driver in, in Formula 1. 
uh, sometimes too fast for his own good, as we've seen with a few crashes of late. But he probably flatters where that car is over one lap. In the race, it just tends to sink. I mean, science, Carlos Sainz is fifth in the World Championship. I've got to say, I barely noticed him this year. I mean, he's 42 seconds off the win in Miami. Charles Leclerc spent most of his race until probably the last third of it fighting with Kevin Magnussen in a Haas. Like, this is where Ferrari is at the moment. And you know, look, they had the new floor. Did it make much of a difference? We, we need a greater, you know, it's a very small sample size at the moment on a very particular track in Miami. But, man, they, they, it just feels that they've got a really, really narrow window that they could operate in. And that window will come and go very fleetingly over a race weekend. It might be on Saturday. It might be for a stint on Sunday. But you need more than that. I, I don't see how their two drivers should be uh, behind Mercedes drivers in the World Championship based on the the relative struggles of both teams. But this is where we find ourselves after five races. Yeah, and really interesting to think how it might look after the next four, let's see, with both teams bringing upgrades and, well, and well, maybe neither of them will get it right, I guess. Can't say only one of them will get it right, but <laughs> maybe one of them will get it right. And I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith it'll be Ferrari, but they could prove us wrong. We don't know. Uh, that's the way the front-running battle unfolded and the midfield battle. I think we have to call them the midfield at this point. The pace is just way too great. And considering there were no interruptions to this race, felt like a fairly honest representation of how things were balancing out over the course of the Grand Prix. Chastening weekend for Sergio Perez. Still only 14 points in it. Look, we've got nothing else to think about. Let's not wave the white flag yet. We may as well see how this one pans out before we just say Max is the champion. But Matt, uh, pleasure to talk about it with you this weekend. Lovely to talk, Michael. Thank you. Perez's limp defeat in Miami doesn't invalidate the pace he showed in Jeddah and Baku this year, but it does underline the weakness of his title challenge. Even if he has only a few off weekends like this, Verstappen has practically none, and it only takes a few dud rounds for the title to slip away. Thanks very much to Matt Clayton for joining me. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you in a couple of weeks for the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!